What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today we're talking to another author, and I am so, so excited and honored because today the guest is Oliver Berkman. All right, so he just came out with a brand new book, 4,000 Weeks, and I was fortunate enough to get an early copy of this book, and I binged it. All right. So little backstory, check it out. Uh, Oliver Berkman has multiple books and he's been writing for quite some time. But I recently, when I was kind of just, you know, really getting into the philosophy of like, you know, happiness and eudaimonia and all that kind of stuff, I came across his book, The Antidote, right? And it was this completely different take on how we find happiness and all this. And it was really like philosophical and stuff. And, and I really just enjoyed how Oliver thinks and researches and all that. So I became obsessed. So I actually have another episode with Oliver about the antidote that will be coming out at a later time. But anyways, anyways, when I saw that he had a book called 4,000 Weeks coming out, I'm like, I need that book because the subtitle of this book is Time Management for Mortals. And, you know, I, I think I am just really, really interested in this idea of time and our relationship with time for just so many reasons. For one, uh, since you know, like most of you who have been here for a while, you know, I'm a recovering addict and I, I almost died, right? So my time is very valuable. I had like a 20% chance of living back in 2012 before I got sober. So my time is very, very valuable and precious to me. But I notice, you know, other people in their relationship to time. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, how can we, you know, overcome that without getting to like a near death experience. And it's funny because Oliver and I actually talk about that in this episode, right? Um, but also with so many things, with so many, many of us being like overworked and working insane hours. And if you're like me, like I'm a father, you know, I'm a, I'm a boyfriend, I'm an employee. I'm also somebody who's doing content like this and I write and so many things. But it's interesting because I feel like I have the time to do all these things as well as other stuff like play video games and all that. But anyways, so I read this new book from Oliver and I'm like, yes, 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 yes. This is such an important book, right? So not only am I glad that I got to read an early copy of it, but I'm so glad that Oliver was able to find the time to sit down and chat with me about some topics in this book. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And please, please, please do yourself a favor and get a copy of this book. Like all of us, every single person on this planet, you know, we struggle with our relationship to time. So you need this book 4,000 weeks, like it will be well worth your time to read it. So check down in the description below. Make sure you are following Oliver uh, over on Twitter. Grab a copy of this book. I'll also link the antidote down below too if you want to read that before that episode comes out as well. All right. But yeah, while you're down in the description, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any new episodes. I also love chatting with all of you and I let you know what books I'm reading, upcoming you know uh, authors that I'm talking to and all that. So make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul. But anyways, long intro, but I had I had to lay the foundation for all of you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Oliver Berkman about his brand new book, 4,000 Weeks.
right. Hello, Oliver. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I am great. And we are talking about your awesome new book that just came out, 4,000 Weeks, and you were so kind to send me an early copy, and I binged it. So for everybody out there who has no idea about this book yet, can you kind of tell us what it's about and and really like what inspired this book? Because you write on a bunch of different topics. So what inspired this one? Well, this book is called 4,000 Weeks, as you say. The subtitle is Time Management for Mortals. Um and I'm occasionally sort of pressured to define the genre that it is in, um, <laughs> which I yeah. find hard because I guess uh, I guess everyone thinks that about their own book. But um, it, it's somewhere between self-help and philosophy, I suppose. Yeah. Um, although I, I, you know, I don't want to claim to be a professional philosopher. I certainly <laughs> not. Um, it, it, it's sort of an advicey kind of book, but it came out of personal experience for sure i mean for years i wrote this column for the guardian called this column will change your life about mm. productivity happiness self-help culture uh, philosophy all the rest of it and um you know one of the things that enabled me to do was was try out a huge number of kind of productivity techniques and time yeah. the other thing it enabled me to do was to become like i don't know sort of addicted to them yeah. uh, sort of um heavily invested and i think this is a common thing among sort of people who consume a lot of this sort of productivity advice stuff sort of invested in the idea that soon one day not today but soon <laughs> i was going to get my life sort of totally in control i was going to be this sort of perfectly optimized you know quantified self all the rest of it all these all these um buzzwords i was going to be able to handle mm -hmm. what felt like an overwhelming amount of things that I even needed to do for career and financial security or wanted to do. Um, and I guess this book was born out of just sort of pursuing that thought right to the end and realizing that it, it was never going to happen. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. that I talk in the book about a sort of epiphany moment I had sitting on a bench on a winter morning in Brooklyn, where I'm speaking to you from now. Um, and uh, just realizing like, all these attempts to try to like get control of time so that I mm -hmm. could do everything that I felt I needed to do, they were just never gonna work. It wasn't gonna be next week or next month that, that I sort of powered through to this serene condition. Mm -hmm. um, and so this book sort of grows out of, of that. Um, that's the sort of personal way of talking about it. There's a, there's a broader way of talking about like what I think we need right now as a culture in terms of thinking about our time for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You, you, you discuss your, your personal experience and I, and I want to chat with you a little bit in a minute about uh, you said you became like a productivity geek almost and like just tried to like master it. And, and when I started reading it, cause this is a topic I've been interested in a while and I've been looking at different books on like time management, but more like the psychology of it or, you know, even the philosophy of it. And that's one thing I love about the book. It's like you kind of blend the two and you even mentioned Shinzen Young. You talk about him a little bit. Mm -hmm. I love his stuff. But uh, but yeah, uh, I was like, yeah, this Oliver knows, knows, knows what he's talking about. And I can relate to it. It's like, did you, did you kind of look around too and just see this kind of larger problem with, uh, you know, what's going on in our culture with this kind of productivity? Like just for example, I come from the YouTube world and there are just endless videos with millions of views on like 
oh, the, the morning routine to up your productivity and, <laughs> you know, and just all these like productivity hacks and how to get more done in less time. Just every, like, I see it everywhere. And like, yeah, like, have you seen this as a cultural kind of thing that's happened in the last few years or, or, or where do you, where else do you notice it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's the culmination of a much longer period of change. You could really even trace it back to like the industrial revolution. And on some level, mm. you know, it's capitalism, isn't it always? But yeah. I think that there is a more recent side to this, which comes from where we've got to with technology. So the fact that, you know, you can um, hope to answer thousands of emails quickly because we're not in the days of snail mail, the, the fact that, you know, you can work uh, from wherever you are. Um, and that sort of creates this kind of uh, effect whereby you, you end up working from wherever you are because you, because you can. I think all sorts of other phenomena like the rise of the, the gig economy and the sort mm. of of, of work. Um, I think the coronavirus has kicked, jump started a bunch of this as well. I think it, puts us in a kind of new and more acute phase mm. of this struggle to master time. And so, you know, I, there's been a bunch of good books um, out at the moment and recently about burnout, which is yeah. like what, what happens when, when you sort of hit the wall with these attempts. And so I guess in a way, I'm hoping that this is sort of the next step. It's like, okay, this approach to time might be decades old, but it's sort of reached a crescendo and it seems suddenly totally unsustainable for tons yeah. of us. And so like, how might we relate to time differently instead? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, uh, especially what you mentioned, like with, with capitalism and just the way our economy is kind of structured around it, because it's, it's all about efficiency, right? Like when, when uh, who was it, Henry Ford, when he made the, the production line, everybody's like, oh my God, this is way yeah. faster. And anybody listening to this podcast or reading the book, it's all about, you know, no matter where you're working, it's about how do we shave some time off this? Or when you hear about uh, the, the workers at Amazon who are talking about unionizing or what happened recently with Frito-Lay, it's all this stuff is around, we want to make this more efficient, maximize profit, lessen the time and all that. So it really trickles into everything, right? Yeah, and yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think efficiency has this very strange quality, right? I mean, this is an observation that goes back at least as far as Max Weber, the sociologist. But, you know, mm. efficiency has this strange quality where it seems to take over all the other goals. Mm. Um, and when people or organizations or cultures get really invested in efficiency, efficiency at all costs, including human costs, um, mm -hmm. sort of seems to colonize all the others. There's nothing wrong with efficiency per se, right? I am not trying to tell you in this book, mm. like if, if it currently takes you an hour and a half to make coffee and get dressed because of the way your kitchen and your bedroom is laid out, like <laughs> sure, change that. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be fine. You know, there's yeah. nothing wrong with efficiency, but it's to do with efficiency in the service of what? And, yeah. and what I, one of the points that I try to make is, I think is pretty important is that like, if, if you and your personal on an individual level, if you pursue efficiency without some sort of higher value that's steering it, mm -hmm. all that's going to happen is that you're going to get busier and in fact, busier on less important stuff because, mm -hmm. you know, we live in a world of, as I call it, say, you know, infinite inputs. 
So the number of emails you could receive, the number of demands your boss could make, the number of business ventures you might want to launch, the number mm-hmm. of YouTube videos you might have the idea for as a content creator, you know, it's all endless. Yeah. So getting faster at getting through it is kind of a misunderstanding because like you're never going to get through it. So yeah. uh, you have to sort of orient yourself differently to time. You know, once maybe it was different. Maybe you could sort of come into the office at nine in the morning and by the end of the day, everything in your in tray would have been moved to your out tray, mm-hmm. go home from martini, you know, but. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's. It's, it's interesting too, because uh, when you were talking about like how you were kind of reflecting on your own, you know, productivity and, you know, trying to maximize all this, you, you had this like kind of epiphany of like, what's, what's the end goal, right? And that's something that where I just had a, a shift in my mindset. And I think it was uh, when I got sober in 2012, right? Like they were telling, they were teaching me like, hey, there's never enough, like, but they were talking about drugs and alcohol, but right. I thought about it with everything now, right? Like there, you know, there seems like there's never enough money, right? So I need to become more productive so I can make more money. And then I have to ask myself, well, how much is enough? So, so like when it comes to like time, like what were, what were some of the things that you were, you were kind of doing to be more productive that led you to kind of realizing like, Hey, where, where am I going with this? Where's this end goal? in that sort of earlier phase as a productivity geek yeah I mean one of the things that I really noticed uh and write about is this idea that the the better I got at getting through stuff at, mm-hmm. at checking items off my to-do list the worse I got at getting around to the things that really mattered mm. um, this weird paradox that I think resonates with a lot of people right it's like I thought I was good at getting things done, but actually I was good at getting the unimportant things done. And so things that really mattered, um, you know, some, I was writing for a newspaper mainly then, you know, you might, you might want to do a sort of um, self-directed, you know, big piece that you wanted mm-hmm. to try and get into the, the, the magazine that the newspaper published and it might be really great for your career. It really matters, but it's not, I mean, partly this is like the old urgent versus important thing, mm. but it's also this idea that like, I kept telling myself that if I just could answer my emails and deal with this little piece I had to write and, and, you know, sort out all this admin I had to do, then I would get these kind of unbroken vistas of focus Mm -hmm. and time when I could focus on the things that I really cared about. And I think that doesn't work. It's certainly these days, people, you know, like the decks will never be clear. So instead, we need to think about how to bring ourselves to focus on what we care about in the context of like full decks rather than um, waiting for this mythical, this mythical time, I suppose. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because here, here's my experience. Like I, I have always just had this kind of like workaholic type nature. And I think that's where I just like clicked with you in the book. I was like, you know, <laughs> get more done, get more done, get more done. So let me ask you this, Oliver, to, pre- to prepare people who read your book. I, I actually had a buddy who bought your book on the first day and he's like, I'm having, an, I'm having an existential crisis reflecting on all this. Right. <laughs> but, but here's my thing. When I first started doing this and I was like, okay, you know, like you mentioned, like doing more things that are, that are important and valuable. So I started spending more time with my girlfriend and my son and just, Hey, let's sit down and watch a movie or whatever. But anyways, it was so hard for me at first. And I'm curious, did yeah. like, was, was this something that you struggled with at first? Because my, my brain was like, you should be doing something. 
you're being lazy right now. Why aren't you doing something? So I'm curious if I'm alone or if you had something no, similar. You're not alone. Not only did I struggle with it, uh, Chris, I do struggle with it. I mean, <laughs> and one of the things I'm really trying to be clear about in this book is like, this is not a book by a guy who's worked his life out perfectly. Now, <laughs> yeah. Generously sharing uh, how you too can live like <laughs> me. Uh, that's not the, that's not my idea at all. I mean, you know, maybe through having spent a bunch of time thinking about this and reading and writing about it, I'm, you know, 10 paces ahead on the path than mm -hmm. any readers will be. And maybe that's useful. Um, of course, it's a struggle. You know, we live in a, uh, uh, firstly, we live in a culture, as we've been discussing, that sort of massively um, reinforces the, 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 uh, the feeling of wanting to do more. And then secondly, I think it's just sort of baked into the human condition that we want to feel like we're somehow outrunning our finitude, our, our limited time by sort of getting onto the next thing and the next thing as a way of kind of staying one step ahead of mortality in a way. Um, and so, yeah, the flywheel is spinning. And if you just sit down and decide that you're going to savor um, the next half hour hanging out with your kids or just, you know, looking mm -hmm. at the flowers in the backyard, it's not gonna feel fun like you feel like it ought to. You're gonna be like antsy and anxious and wondering mm. if, if what, what's happening. So that's why I think one of the biggest insights, even though it sounds so mundane, but one that has helped me is just like, don't expect it to feel great immediately. Yeah. Um, try some of this stuff, try this general approach or some of the specific techniques, if you like, that I talk about, but like, just like give it an hour or a week or a mm -hmm. year, you know, um, don't, don't, don't assume that stepping off the, the treadmill is going to feel great because it isn't, it's going to be, I mean, I'm switching metaphors, but it's like, getting, <laughs> like sea legs, you know, you get off, yeah. the, you get off the boat. Doesn't feel, um, doesn't feel right at first. Yeah. Yeah. Something I, 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 I do some like self, uh, some tough love self-talk, right? Like if I'm sitting down, you know, just hanging out, you know, with my son and girlfriend or even friends, uh, you know, when the pandemic's not around, uh, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I have to tell myself like, this isn't a waste of time, Chris. Like you are spending quality time. You know, like my son, for example, he's 12. In less than six months, he's going to be 13. And then pretty soon he's going to want nothing to do with me. So I remind myself like, this is not a waste of time. And and yeah, I, I you know, in the, in the book, you do such a great job talking about, you know, just, just the, the, the finitude of, you know, all these things and how we have to kind of change our relationship to time. But before, before I ask you about some of those more ph philosophical stuff on, on the topic of like a cultural thing, like when you, when we talk about like being antsy or, or restless when we're trying to, you know, just relax and cut back. I'm curious how much you think that has to do with social comparison right? Or even competition with, with one another. For example, if I'm, or if you're not writing right now, someone else is writing and they might be more successful. And you know what I mean? Or, right, right. or when we're looking on social media, someone's out doing something or they're producing. And so I'm curious what, what you think about the social influence of all that. I, I my, my guess is that that is like hugely powerful. <laughs> what's going on here. I think that the way I would understand social comparison here is as is as one instance of the ways in which we're trying to sort of escape the 
the non-negotiable laws of being human, right? I mean, mm. one way of doing that is to sort of meditate so hard that you think one day you're going to like burst through into a situation of kind of eternal presence or something. Another way is to feel like you're you're like different than everyone else because you're famous or mm -hmm. um, super successful. Um, and yeah, I think we do want to be better than other people, but I think the reason that we want to be better than other people is that I think on some level, getting a bit sort of psychoanalytic or something, <laughs> we want to sort of feel that we're sort of pushing through to some situation where we're immune to mm. the, the forces that that are that we're all ultimately <laughs> subject to. Um, and yeah, I think the other thing, just to sort of it, it, maybe it's a little tangential, but what you said made me think of it. Um, as the father of a four-year-old, so I'm very it's very useful for me to talk to the fathers of uh, yep. children a bit older because it puts me on notice. It's like <laughs> no waste But on the other hand, there's a sense in which you do need to waste the time, right? Because because mm. there's a sense in which we've come to think about the idea of wasting time as being you're not using it for some future benefit. And yet, when you just hang out with your son like sure you might be building a good relationship with the future for the future with him but that's mm -hmm. not the only reason you're doing it hopefully you're doing it because right then for you and him it's a good thing to be doing yeah and so you know in a weird way ju based judged by the standards of what counts as using your time well and wasting your time that are prevalent today we kind of have to waste time a bit more we have to be willing to sort of think um you know, this isn't necessarily, I'm not doing this thing that I'm doing right now necessarily because it's like building up to something. Yeah. Um, because that way you're just living in the future all the time and you're sort of mm -hmm. never actually here, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, and that's that's one of the, the things I, I love just learning about, uh, you know, Shinzen Young and just mindfulness and just, you know, being present and stuff like, and just being here and enjoying this and not thinking about, you know, the future, what am I, or, or the past, like things I missed out on or things that I might be missing out on, like just enjoying the time I have right now. But, you know, uh, even on the topic of mindfulness, you talk a little bit in the book about uh, kind of, you know, our, our problems with not being busy uh it has a little bit to do with avoidance and maybe some of our fears and you know a great example is just you know uh the the rise of smartphones and everything and you know uh there's studies on how we just don't like to just not have anything to do so through your research or even personal experience what do you, what have you found that we're typically trying to avoid I mean, I think the sort of blanket way of understanding it is we're trying to avoid feeling certain kinds of emotions mm. that, I mean, yeah, to turn into a shrink for a moment, like <laughs> it's, it's certain kinds of emotions that we, we sort of believe would destroy us somehow to feel. We believe yeah. it would be terrible to feel them. And, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of psychologists would talk about how this comes from early childhood when actually, you know, things are a matter of life or death. And you do need to keep on the right side of the people looking after you and all this stuff because you're, yeah. you're helpless and powerless. But today, you know, what, one example of this is, is distraction, right? Just digital distraction. Yeah. Just like, like running off to Twitter when you're supposed to be, or when you wanted to be working on something that you cared about. Um, and as I try to talk about, you know, it's like, we're not, 
we talk as if what happens is that, like the social media companies come and reach into our brain and we <laughs> voluntarily are dragged away from what we're doing. And the social media companies do have a lot to answer for, but we're not dragged away. We run away eagerly, yeah. you know, because we feel, because there are emotions involved with, in my case, say like working on a difficult bit of writing mm -hmm. um, or having an important but tricky conversation with your spouse or something like that. Mm -hmm. There are emotions involved in this that we don't want to feel. Um, and so we, um, we, we engage in these weird behaviors instead that don't actually help us in the long run, but they just help us not have to feel that feeling. There's a great quote I love a little bit, talk about tough love. There's a quote from Carl <laughs> Jung um, mm. said, neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering, mm. which I take to mean that like all these behaviors that we engage in um, because we wanna, you know, that, that lead us astray, one way or another addictions and distractions mm -hmm. and all the rest of it they're all like a substitute for some kind of painful experience that it would be good for us to have basically yeah. that, we, that we would grow as a result of having had so i think that's it's it's, it's just feeling our feelings that we don't want to that we don't want to do um, yeah kind of universal i think yeah yeah, it's it's really interesting. I recently I, I've spoken with people like uh, Randy Nessie. He's an evolutionary psychologist, and you know, wrote about uh, his book is literally called "Good Reasons for Bad Feelings." And uh, you know, I, I spoke actually this morning. I spoke with Alan Francis, who was part oh, of the, yeah. the committee. Yeah, for the, yeah. the DSM four, and and he basically yes, invents he basically invents psychology, right? I mean, he's yeah. like what. Whatever psychology is, it's because he decided. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. He says, "What is or isn't normal, right?" But, but yeah, what I, what I, what the, what keeps coming up, and even just in this conversation right now that we're having is, like, some we just need to feel these things and go through it. But we're always trying to, you know, self. I think, uh, you know, medication and self medication takes a lot of different forms. Like, you know, I mentioned, like for a long time for me, I didn't want to feel certain feelings, so I would use drugs and alcohol, but. When I got sober, I looked around and people cover that up with other distractions, whether it's, you know, relationships or just, uh, you know, scrolling through social media or, you know, I, I almost wonder how much of uh, like when I when I look online on like Twitter and you see these people just being like absolutely brutal. I'm like, how many of you are just trying to escape what's going on in your real life? You know oh, what I mean? Oh, and like start asking that question about certain political leaders oh who, yeah uh, you know it's just it's the same thing and you, uh, the danger there is you start feeling compassionate for them. <laughs> right. oh guy he was a toddler once too who wasn't being properly like unconditionally loved by his parents. exactly but, um, yeah and i mean i'm glad you bring up um i don't know if you want to talk more about it or not but like sobriety i think that you yeah, know it's absolutely that, it, it's not that it, it, it's not that being addicted to twitter is the same as alcoholism um mm -hmm. Uh, in all sorts of ways, that's a kind of uh, comparison that would get me into trouble. But I think <laughs> the basic, this root pattern of emotional avoidance yeah. is, is, is there. And I think it's also, I think hurry is the other thing that I'm talking about in the book. You're not just being distracted, but like speeding through life is, I think, based on the psychological work that I study for this book and my own experience of, of, of sort of compulsive hurry, um, I think there probably are comparisons to, yeah. between um, be, between the sort of substance abuse and yeah. sort of um, uh, what would you call it, sort of speed of life mm -hmm. abuse. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, and you you bring up that topic of hurry because yeah, a lot of it is quick fixes and all this. Like when I'm talking with these psychologists and everything who are kind of looking at the mental health landscape and the the fact, especially here in the United States, with how much we're prescribing pills, right? It's this yeah. kind of quick fix. I don't want to feel this way now, right? I want to feel better now, but that kind of hurrying, you know, you cover it awesome in your book. Like there was one part where you talk about, you know, like people just driving and honking that kind of hurry. And something that I've, I've just kind of recognized over the last, you know, few years since I've really been working on this stuff is looking around and, and just asking like, where, where are you in such a hurry to go? Right? Like what, what is our rush? What is our hurry? And you, you live in New York, right? Like, mm -hmm. so you constantly got people speeding around and there's cars honking, taxis honking everywhere. So what do you think that, where do you think that comes from? Why are we, why are we in such a rush, not just to get rid of our emotions, but just to get from point A to point B? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. And yeah, living around here, uh, I think the, the thing that really strikes me about um, the, the driving practices around here, certainly. <laughs> um, I'm a Brooklyn non-car owner, so I'm a little bit prejudiced maybe, but, but like people honking their horns in traffic in New York City are not really trying in any meaningful way to speed the traffic up. Like <laughs> yeah. they know that's not going to happen. They know that they are the traffic, and uh, you know that that um, with very few exceptions, you know maybe sometimes somebody sort of zoning out at a green light. But normally you're just honking because you're angry that the traffic is moving slower than than you wish it would. And and so I think this sort of is a is a little sort of. Um, uh, the the microcosm, I guess, is the word I'm looking for of 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 what's going on with our attempts to kind of mm. speed reality up. Because yeah, I think it's a way of it's a way of achieving or hoping to achieve this sense of control, this sense of security. Is this feeling that you can sort of make reality go at the speed that you need it to go you think because you've got so much you have to do and if you don't get through it all you'll you won't be able to you know uh pay the rent or you won't be able to mm -hmm. um achieve your potential or whatever your particular goal is um so you know and it's getting worse right that this is this great irony that i write about that like we've got all this time-saving technology microwaves <laughs> right uh jetliners um uh, you know, uh, and, and all the rest of washing machines, uh, vacuum cleaners. It doesn't make anybody more relaxed as you would expect it to by saving yeah. lots of time. It makes people more impatient. And I think that the reason for that is that it brings us closer and closer and closer to this feeling that maybe we're just around the corner from being able to make reality go at exactly the speed that we want to be yeah. totally in control of the world. And so it's even more frustrating that you have to wait um, two minutes for the microwave because <laughs> right. you're so close you know you're so close to being god but you're but you're not quite um, yeah. it's the same with slow loading web pages have you, oh, you know, yeah. it's, like, it's so annoying when it takes eight seconds for a web page to load and right. amazon apparently you know they've done calculations about the billions that websites lose each year if their <laughs> website takes another uh you know 15th of a second to load and it's like that that's way more frustrating than than having to wait four days for someone to send something in the mail. It's yeah. Kind of weird. It's kind of weird. 
yeah it's 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 really wild like something uh i think it was uh i can't remember the the positive psychologist but i learned about hedonic adaptation right like yeah. when things when, when things get uh, when things improve now we just want them better you know what i mean <laughs> because we get used to it and i i try to remind myself like when we're talking about speeding up time like uh we uh, my son and i we've we've been watching like the the pirates of the caribbean you know uh movies because yeah. i've never seen them he recently got into pirates but whatever but it's like looking at it and be like man back then they had to like <laughs> sail for months like for months just to go somewhere. And then if they yeah. went back home, that's more months, right? Just how long that took. And now, like, you know, like you mentioned, we have we have cars, we have jets, we have trains, we have all these things. And and when you mentioned the internet, you know, I grew up in the 90s and I remember AOL and that dial tone and how slow all that was. And just in the span of a, you know, 20 years, we're, yeah. we have broadband and Wi-Fi. And I think we forget that. But here's what's crazy, Oliver, like, how, how our perspective kind of switches, because I think most of us, when we're kids, we want time to speed up, right? Like mm -hmm. I want to be a teenager so I could drive, or I want to be an adult so I could do this. But you would think that it would almost be intuitive to want it to slow down maybe around, you know, midlife, because aren't we just getting closer to like death? Why do we want everything to happen so fast when the, the end of the road is, is that way? You know what I mean? Yeah, why do we want it to go faster? I don't know. It's I, I'm sorry, I just got to stop and talk to you about uh, growing up with different phases of the computer revolution there. Oh, yeah, yeah, do it. <laughs> how fast reality goes, because I'm I'm uh, pretty sure I'm a, a little chunk older than you, but not but not like massively, massively. I am 36. Right. So I'm 45. So yeah, yeah we're, not we're bad. right. But I grew up in the UK, this was with a computer called the BBC Micro Model B that uh, was all the rage and was probably about as powerful as like, um, you know, my dishwasher is today. Yeah. <laughs> power. But, um, and you, uh, you had to, when you wrote a program in basic to like, I don't know, you know, make a colorful pattern come on screen, you, to save it, you saved it onto cassette tape and mm. it made these kind of screeching noises for about 10 minutes while it saved the data in this kind of, in this in this form of sound onto a onto an old-fashioned cassette tape and that was where oh. or if you bought games you had to press play and leave them to load for an hour off this thing just <laughs> an extraordinary difference in speed and i'm talking about the last few decades ne never mind like if you think about uh you know if you think about like going back the last century how completely mm. transformed these things have have become it's really sort of mind-bending how yeah. how society has accelerated and computers are always the way that you know you don't have to be at 90 years old if you think about computers you can always see that uh, if you're older than about 15 you can always <laughs> see that like the, the speed at which things change in this in this realm is just it's just it's just mind-bending yeah. um, why do we want things to go faster i mean it's funny i guess that happens until you're in your sort of 30s and then you start noticing that um time in your recollection seems to be acceler accelerating so that mm -hmm. um, it seems like weeks go by in a minute mm -hmm. um, and then you're suddenly like hang on can I can I can I slow this thing down I, I suppose what unites both those situations is a kind of resistance to how it is right now and I think that's pretty deep rooted in everyone because we're you know it the thing that I think we probably find the hardest to cope with at every age 
is this idea that like this is it no no this is it yeah. like, like it's not a dress rehearsal it's not like there's going to be a moment of truth soon it's like no this moment right here is is it and that's obviously incredibly hard to uh, to expect to like a to expect a sort of 10 or 12 year old to internalize yeah. in a world where becoming an adult and doing things in the world is like the fundamental organizing principle of like that's what society says we're all here for mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't have to be that way right i mean the idea that the idea that children are primarily preparing for adulthood like that's just the value that we've adopted for various reasons we, yeah. could, we could decide that it was just as valuable to be a child or more valuable than mm -hmm. than the adult that you were sort of heading towards yeah. So, so let's, let's, let's have a dad moment for a second, Oliver. So uh, this is something that I think about with, with my son, you know, because we want our kids to, you know, learn from what we've done and like, you know, just this, this idea of time, it, it made me anxious and made me depressed and it made me just out of my mind sometimes. And I feel I'm much better now, but uh, you know, I, I have conversations with my son. If, if, you know, like, for example, we've been getting into cooking lately and trying out different recipes and, you know, uh, I've been teaching him from a young age, like, Hey, let's slow it down. Like what's our rush. Right. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm curious, your, your little one being only like four years old. I, I'm curious if you've thought about this, how are you going, how are you going to, like you said, like, we, we teach the next generation, we teach kids. So what have you thought about how we should be talking? How are you gonna to talk to your kid about it? Or how, how could we do a better job talking with our kids about time management and our relationship to time? The thing that, it's a, such a fascinating question. I'm not sure I have a really good answer. <laughs> the thing that I have noticed, and it's kind of a bummer, is that um, the only way to uh, inculcate anything good in my son uh -huh. is that I actually have to do it myself. Like I actually have to do it myself. <laughs> yeah. so it's not good enough actually even to just not be scrolling through Twitter on my phone in his presence. I actually have to be like living a life where I don't do too much scrolling through Twitter on my phone. Um, yeah. It's kind of almost, it's, it's spooky in a way, right? Cause you kind of assume kids aren't being shaped by you when you're not physically right them but you know i think that is the i think that is the truth of the matter and i think one of the things that i'm grateful for about being a older parent as these things go is like i do know feel like i've got a slightly better handle on this mm. than i did when i think of my own parents raising me in their mid-20s and i i would have been i, I mean sounds like you've been a pretty good father and probably did have did start in your mid-20s but like I would have been terrible <laughs> so <laughs> that's sort of um I I appreciate that I've managed to sort of yeah become a little bit more get a handle on on some of these things um before being the model or a model for a for a small person to follow um and I really just think with all these things like it starts with oneself um I there are certain things I think about trying to sort of put limits around mm -hmm. screen time and choose what you're doing on screens and what you're not. I think probably that's still very easy for me as a father of a four-year-old and it's about to get a lot harder. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh yeah, we only let him watch this amount of TV per day. And like the parent of the eight-year-old is like, 
yeah, yeah. You, you just wait till till it's not really uh, till it's enforce <laughs> those uh, those rules. And then the other thing that happens, I think, tell me if this resonates with your experience, is that kids improve you in this way as well, right? Oh, yeah. And so, um, you know, because I know that it's important for him to to me for him to spend a lot of time outdoors and in nature. I've ended up spending way more time outdoors and in nature than I would have mm. done because I feel like it's important for him, but like it's yeah. kind of for me as well. Um, and they do sort of keep you on the straight and narrow. Um, for a couple of weeks right now, as a result of this book launch and all sorts of boring things I don't need to detain you with, I'm actually <laughs> in a different country than him for like three weeks, which is like a long period. Oh, yeah. By my standards. And um, I sort of slightly become a wreck in my personal routines and my, my remembering to, you know, stay healthy and spend time outdoors and all this stuff because you sort of keep each other on the straight and narrow in a way, I think. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. It, it encourages me to, uh, like I said, just not just spend more time with them, but try new things and step away. But, you know, as you were talking about that and we're talking about, you know, just being on our phones or, you know, whatever, uh i i you know i try to think of how uh you know he might be modeling my behavior right so right. if i'm constantly anxious and in a rush or being productive or you know working like crazy you know that i have to think about how he's going to see that and think that that's normal right like i think right. about my own childhood and growing up and lessons i learned and things right. that i had to relearn like i had to take the good and switch some other bad things you know whatever it is so yeah. that's 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 another benefit i'm not telling everybody to go have a kid but it helps me kind of look at my own behaviors and be like okay well if i don't think the way i'm using my time is healthy maybe i should stop doing it because <laughs> i don't want him to see this but uh yeah. yeah, let's 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 switch gears from from the the beauty of young life and start <laughs> talking about death for a second. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so one part I loved about the book, and and yeah, this will be an interesting part of the conversation because I don't know, I don't know how people can learn this. But anyways, quick story. Uh, so nine years ago when I got sober, I had like a like a twenty percent chance of living right? Like I had congestive heart failure. My heart was huge. They're like, man, even if you get sober, you're probably going to die. Right. So I've, I've been sober for nine years now and I'm healthier. My heart's getting better. And, you know, it's been getting better for years now, but anyways, you talk about this in the book, like what makes our time so valuable is that we have a limited time on this planet. And you discuss how people who have kind of had these like near death experiences, they kind of recognize this. Right. And I'm like, yes, like, yeah. I, I, I look around like for, yeah, just since getting sober, I look around, and I think about, you know, this borrowed time that I'm living on and how fortunate I am. I, I wake up, I get early, I'm excited for the day. It improves my mood because I'm like, I get to have today. Right. And I try to make sure each day is valuable and not every day is, but the next day I might reflect and be like, oh man, Chris, like you didn't make the most of that day. And even if it's just something minor, like spending time with people or talking with friends or whatever. So, so yeah, so I don't want everybody to go have near-death experiences, but did you learn anything through writing this book about how we can kind of, you know, the average person can start looking at time in a more valuable way like that without having to almost die? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, yes, yes. Do not, I'm not encouraging the audience to, to take uh, lifestyle choices that <laughs> put them in a near-death situation. I think that, you know, I think 
the point is, what's the wisdom there? And you've pointed to it, I think, very clearly. Um, and can we sort of gently push ourselves into that wisdom, not into the near-death experience? Mm. Um, because the truth is that, like everything, is borrowed time, right? I'm quoting mm. here one of my favorite bloggers, David Kane, who does a blog called Raptitude, um, mm. uh, who puts it that way. There's a very deep truth that sort of goes back a long way into philosophy, I think. Um, that you're not sort of automatically entitled to be here at all. Yes. And we've got no way of guaranteeing that we have another day. And this is not a recipe. I'm not trying to say so to therefore panic about like <laughs> day and go through your life feeling really kind of teed up about whether you're, uh, you know, carpeing the DM enough. But yeah. just that, um, you know, it's kind of a miracle. And it's and so people who go through something, a near death experience, you know, have a sense of this borrowedness. Mm-hmm. But it's not that their time is, it's not that they're living on borrowed time and the rest of us aren't, right? It's yeah. not that like, it's not that like you were a bad person because you ended up like needing to get sober and then realize mm-hmm. it. It's like we're all in that situation in different to differently damaging degrees, and yeah. then. And then some of us who go through some kind of epiphany can can see this truth, which is like every minute is this is it, this is it, this is it, and we're here, and this is real, and um, and you're not you don't have a right to it, and it's mm-hmm. it's worth embracing. And I think one of the great insights that comes from that, again, I haven't really had sort of anything I would call a near death experience, so it's not I, I'm I'm it's partly a matter of letting this seep into me from from talking and reading the work of others but yeah it's it isn't that you're then going to use that day for to necessarily do like extraordinary things and you say yeah. like you know, not every day is a good day or something but but with a bit more of this attitude it's almost like anything you do is kind of amazing right it's almost like I write in the book about one person who sort of who who lost a close friend and kept finding himself thinking like he'd be stuck in a traffic jam and he'd be thinking like what would David have given to be able to be in this traffic mm. jam, right? It's kind of even the really crappy bits of life are kind of, it's almost more amazing that yeah. we get to have them than what particular content they happen to be filled with. So I think that, you know, people who have a bit of that perspective, it's not that they then give everything up and go and open a bungee yeah. jumping company in, in New Zealand, right? It's that they, it's, it's that they step out of their house and, there's, a, there's traffic on the street and like, you know, trash. And they still then kind of think it's, it's kind of amazing to be there. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think that's a, a way we can all connect to it. Like I think of just feelings of, you know, gratitude and awe. Like there's so much science around like, hey, when you experience awe, some good things happen, right? And that's that's just something I've personally tried to do. Like, for example, every morning, <laughs> every morning I go for a walk a, a couple miles and uh, it's like still a hundred degrees here in Las Vegas in the morning when I go for a walk. But anyways, I, I try to just soak in, you know, the trees and, you know, and just like uh, nature and all that stuff, like uh, even cars driving by and just like, man, this is cool. You know what I mean? Just, we were even talking about technology. And so I get grateful and just think about how awesome and amazing that is. And maybe that's why I love to read so much too, just learning about all these different things. You know, now that we're on the subject, Oliver, I think I read so much 
because I'm like, I only have a certain amount of time. I got to cram as much knowledge as I can. Into I, my- I, I got to say, I was thinking of doing this when I'm preparing for this podcast. I'm like, I need some tips here. You need to, you need to explain your, um, <laughs> your, your reading skills. Cause actually one of the things I write about in the book is you'll know is um, uh, the, the, you know, we'll talk about finding it very difficult to find time to read today. And I think what mainly we mean is that we're not willing to slow down to the speed that reading requires of us um, yeah you clearly are but then on the other hand you're also clearly reading pretty fast um otherwise i don't think this could be happening so i so uh when i explain this to people i almost feel like i'm like uh you know just some kind of ma- magician or, or trickster because <laughs> my my trick is actually audiobooks um right. and because like you said like uh yeah that that time spent reading like my brain like if i tried to sit down with a book for a few hours my brain would just beat the hell out of me, right? So uh, last week, I actually had an episode with, uh, I'm sure you've heard of her, uh, Annie Murphy-Paul, right? And she wrote, she has her fantastic new book, The Extended Mind. And we were talking about that, how you can learn and, and stuff better or retain information or be more creative when you're like, using your body and stuff. So for example, I mentioned my, my morning walks every morning while I'm walking, that's, you know, a couple miles, you know, I walk for about 45 minutes to an hour and, uh, I'm listening to books, you know, so I'm two birds, one stone. Uh, when I'm doing the dishes, I'm listening to books when I'm, uh, grocery shopping, uh, I'm listening, I have my earphones in, I'm listening to books. So, so that's kind of like my, my trick now uh, for you, like, you know, with a four-year-old, it's a little bit more difficult uh, because like my son's at an age where he'll be like, hey, I'm going to go play video games with my friends for a while. So I'm like, okay, cool. And my girlfriend's in uh, her master's program in college. So I get some time. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, you, would but, not be being, you would not be being a good father if you never got out of your son's face at that age. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, those are, those are some of the, the tricks. But um, it's, it's one of the things where it's, you know, when we just kind of prioritize our lives, like what do we find important, right? And I feel that learning is really important. I like learning about different topics, different perspectives. So I, I try to prioritize it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I don't think audiobooks are cheating at all. I mean, it's the... Uh... What you're doing there is the only kind of multitasking that does actually work, which is (laughs) totally different channels of activity, walking and listening, doing the dishes and listening. Um, As you will know, you know, answering email and listening, that doesn't work so well. Yeah, no, that's that's what I've found, because during my day job, I I manage content. So like if I have to write or edit, I can't have any words going in my brain because it doesn't work like that. But but for example, speaking of kids, I recently bought myself a Lego. I treated myself. And yeah, over this weekend, like I was just, you know, listening to books and working on my my Stranger Things Lego. So it's it's a fun type of multitasking. Uh, but but yeah, like uh, with with how much time we we I don't even know how to say this right because we're talking about you know time isn't really wasted. But one thing I was dying to talk to you about, Oliver, is what about people who do just waste time, right? Like there are objectively lazy people because <laughs> I used to be one, right? <laughs> I use, you know, and I, I, that's my fear with books like yours or any kind of book where it's like, Hey, you know, because I'm like, okay, well I can, Hey, I, hey, Oliver told me that I need to spend more time with myself and, you know, I'll just sit on the couch all day. So here's the question I have. Have you kind of figured out where that balance is between 
productivity and not just being like a lazy lump that's not doing anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean, but I mean, I, 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 my urge is to sort of undercut the dichotomy here, right? Ooh. It's like, yes, I, we all have different temperaments and I don't blame someone who's born, you know, with a, at a slower moving pace than, than somebody else. Um, but I don't think it's about like the perfect amount of activity. I think it mm. is to do with whether you're doing something with your life that has meaning for you, mm. which is a very sort of nebulous notion. It's not the same as happiness. In the back of the book, I have these sort of questions in, that I sort of prompt people to um, yeah. ask themselves. And one of them uh, relates to this, uh, re 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 well, several of them in some ways relate to this, this idea that, that I'm taking from James Hollis, the, um, the Jungian analyst, about whether you're in a, on a path and making the kind of choices that in his phrase, um, enlarge you or diminish you. Mm. It's very interesting. I've always found it's very interesting phrasing because, you know, like, am I on a path that's going to make me happy? That's a really difficult question. We, we're terrible at predicting these things. Happiness yeah. is fleeting. It's a really a bad question to ask yourself of your life. Like, am I en route to happiness? But when you ask yourself, am I sort of Am I growing in what I'm doing or am I kind of diminishing and shrinking? I think most people can intuitively answer that. And so, you know, I, I think it's clear to me that if I were to, and I have got better at it, but if I were to get even better at being able to stop and let the flywheel slow down and just show up for the present moment, for me, type A personality, la la la, mm -hmm. that, would be, that would be growth. Yeah. Um, and it has been growth to the extent that I've managed to do it. For somebody who is like, finds no problem at all in spending like um, five hours of an afternoon, just like staring into space um, yeah. and might feel like they're here for more than that, you know, asking that same question, what would be sort of enlarging, what would be growth oriented for me, what would be generative and creative, is going to have a different answer that's going to be like oh actually i should you know maybe i should like go and engage with my community or um or finally get started on that creative project i've been telling everyone i'm going mm. to launch for years um so it's totally depends on who you are but i think the sort of consistent guiding question is are you sort of enlarging growing or are you just sort of like treading water and and sh or shrinking and it can be uh, the same activity can be can, can give either mm. answer for, for different people there are totally people in this world i have been and maybe i'm one of them who probably should spend more time each day playing video games yeah. but goodness knows there are lots of people who should spend less time so. yeah it's almost like we're, we're trade we're swapping that time but but yeah no uh i i love how you said that it it like it's it's all about just like checking in with ourselves right like you know how do i feel about this this time i just spent like me you know me spending three hours depressed watching netflix and you know by myself is a lot different than me sitting down and watching you know with with friends or family or whatever those are two different contexts and and just kind of looking at it. i think i think you know as you were talking like my fear or the fear i have for others is like i remember just being in 
deep, deep depressions, right? right? And one of the core symptoms of depression is lack of motivation. And, right. and then we justify not doing anything, even though doing any, like doing something, doing anything, a walk, a call, a whatever is better than just sitting there in your own thoughts. So, so yeah. yeah, it's, it's checking in with ourselves and saying like, you know, why am I doing this? Or even like we discussed earlier, like, am I avoiding something? Is this, you know, is this helping me grow or is it helping me shrink? You know what I mean? And right, just right. regularly checking in. Yeah. And I just want to say as well, just you bring up sort of specifically depression. I think there too, it's like, there is this very curious and paradoxical attitude to be cultivated where you do sort of accept that you have these feelings, right? You're not there. And mm. it's not going to help to be fighting them, to, to, to wish that things weren't the way they were, which is that you are in that moment feeling depressed. But it's actually that that kind of acceptance is the prelude to being able to put, you know, to do one thing, to go from being unable to get out of bed to being able to get out of bed, uh, yeah. make your bed, to quote a famous author, and then <laughs> make a cup of tea. And maybe that's all you do today, but that's immeasurably more than nothing. And I think that it all, it, it's this, yeah, it requires that we do accept who we are and and our personalities, but not but not resign ourselves to our personalities. I think that's the, that's probably the distinction. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, even, even like you, like you said, I, I'm sure you've, well, maybe, maybe you've noticed this Oliver, but lately there's been this conversation about how often celebrities bathe and bathe their children. I don't know if you've seen that popping up. Didn't everywhere. A little bit. This is the Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, yeah. Jake. And then Ashton right. Kutcher. Yeah. All, all right. these people. And then like, yeah, Kristen Bell. Anyways, anyways, like it just randomly came out. But anyways, <laughs> for me personally, it's, uh, uh, you know, um, like you were talking about these routines, like making your bed or, you know, whatever, like uh, bathing for me is just a self-care thing, right? Even if I'm totally fine, not stinky, whatever, I don't have any strong opinions either way on this stuff. But for me, it's just, it's me getting that kind of like, okay, you, if nothing else, you got one thing done today, right? Like you did that thing, you took care of yourself, you got to, you know, do this. And, and I think that's what it is. And, you know, for some people it's, uh, you know, we were talking about those quote unquote productivity hacks or morning routines or whatever. I do see some benefits if like each morning, like, uh, you know, each morning I used to have a decent habit of meditating for at least like five or 10 minutes. You know what I mean? Right. And it was like checking, uh, uh, a growing thing off of my my checklist, something that I feel improved me a little bit as a person. Yeah. So I think I think that's that's a decent rule of thumb to just have something one one productive thing at least. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I think that if you're coming from a base of feeling like if you're if the risk if you're a person whose risk is depression, whose risk is like mm. doing nothing, it's so important to be able to see that like every single thing you do is is a was a was a thing you know it's not yeah. it's not like I, i've written before about this idea that you know i think lots of us carry this idea that we get up every morning in a kind of productivity debt that we have to pay off through the day oh, yeah. and that if we get enough done we'll be at, we'll just come back into like zero balance which is mm -hmm. a terrible way to be i think it's much more useful sometimes to remember that like you get up in the morning you could have done nothing so therefore anything you do is <laughs> is credit, right, to your account. Um, which is why I think it's a good idea sometimes to keep um, a done list, you know, a list of things you've, not that you've got to do, but the things you have done. Mm. Because then sort of, you see this great list get bigger through the day and it's like every single item on it is, is better than having done nothing at all. 
All right. Yeah. So, so yeah, checking things off, like having a done list and, and these small, I, I like to call these small wins, but you yeah. know, uh, with, with a couple, I have a couple more things I want to ask you about just your ideas about, you know, just, uh, how our society's kind of structured, right? Like, you know, some of the, the richest nations, like you come from the UK, now you're here in the States and capitalism is the thing, efficiency, productivity, but yeah, uh, there's hustle culture and burnout and all these things. So I'm just curious, like, if you've thought about this, like, are, are there any, you know, policy changes that you've thought about? Like, there, for example, there's been conversations about raising the minimum wage. Uh, when you had Andrew Yang running around, he was talking about universal basic income. And uh, I remember first learning about that from Johan Hari's last book, Lost Connections, and talk about how people had more time and they didn't feel this need to work so much. So I'm just curious if you think there's adjustments to this kind of capitalist system that could help us reclaim some time and not feel this incessant need to work, 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 work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I think my, my views on this matter are sort of not super surprising for a, <laughs> a sort of, uh, leftish um, European person. I think that, um, you know, especially in this country, the US, you know, a, a, yeah. strong, a much stronger social safety net, a much, much greater ability for, um, uh, you know, parents to have time off and, uh, and, yeah. and, and, for, and childcare provision, all these things. I'm like, I'm pro, you're not going to find me um, <laughs> uh, objecting to any of those. I think, you know, the struggle that I had in the book was I was sort of aware writing this book, right, that there's a certain kind of criticism from the left of basically all self-help type things yeah. just as much as any, which I'm sympathetic to as a criticism, right? Which goes, you know, the very fact of suggesting that we need to change ourselves or our outlook in saying that you're kind of, you're turning this into a sort of individualistic yeah. uh, thing. And what we actually need is, um, social solidarity and, and changes to at the level of government that will um, that will mean that these issues don't arise in the same way. And I think that's, you know, I'm really sympathetic to that criticism. What I try to, when I try to engage with it in the book and in life, I'm sort of saying, look, firstly, yes, like <laughs> you do need all these changes. Um, secondly, like in the meantime, I have quite a long to-do list that I have to get through. So, so some strategies for thinking about my time right now in late capitalism would be quite useful to me, you know, pending <laughs> these, these changes. And the, way, the place where this all connects is like, I think that it is actually subversive in a way. It mm. is a certain form of resistance to see that we are finite, that you can only do so, so much, that we live in a culture and an economy that makes impossible demands on us. Certainly, you know, it's, makes worse impossible demands for people at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale than, than mm -hmm. for wealthy people. But like, it makes impossible demands of the rich as well, because as we know from work, people like um, Daniel Markovitz wrote that great book about meritocracy, right? If you yeah. win in our culture, you lose. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you lose, you lose. And if you win, you lose, because you'll find yourself kind of pressured to work ceaselessly uh, for your incredibly high salary and your really lovely life and your second home in the Hamptons or whatever, like it, it's kind of a high, very unpleasant 
high pressure existence yeah. as well. Um, and so just to back to what I was saying was like, there's a kind of a, to psychologically um, sort of secede from that, to say to yourself, look, I might have to, you know, my job situation and my life situation might require me to have to do all sorts of BS. It might do, like that might be the best calculation that I have to like work really long hours at the moment. But if I can, at a job I don't find meaningful or whatever, but if I can stop pretending that there's a way to meet these impossible demands, if I can internally see that like this is a rigged game that I don't need to fully invest in, if I can see that the real situation is that my time is finite and I have to make choices and that, you know, finding the great new time management technique is not going to allow me to meet the impossible demands of mm -hmm. my work or my society because they are impossible. I don't know if I'm conveying this well in this conversation. I probably yeah, no, I, in writing, but like there's a, you know, there's, there's something subversive about that because at yeah. least then, even if you can't quit your job that you don't like, even if you can't, like pursue what you would find most meaningful in life you are seeing what's real mm -hmm. and you're not falling for a myth that people are trying to get you to fall for yeah yeah i something i've become obsessed with in the last year is just the I, whole idea of of meritocracy and all that but but something like i i feel i feel very fortunate like uh grateful even like we were talking about earlier like i was able to read an early book version uh uh of your book followed by will store's upcoming book the status game oh, and yeah. like and just kind of like looking at this stuff you know what i mean just because like so everybody listening you just get both of them and read them back to back. Well, Wills comes out <laughs> later, but uh, yeah, because part of this is, you know, with the way our, our society's kind of structured, you know, we're, we're seeking status. And earlier we were talking about, you know, how much does this have to do with social comparison and all these things? Like I, I personally had to sit back and say, why, why do I want to do this? Why do I want to work more and all this stuff? And, and when we're talking about these jobs that have us working these in, impossible hours, like not my job, my current job, I'm not just saying this because I might listen, but anyways, <laughs> very cool. I can get time off whenever I want. Very right. flexible. I get to work from home, you know, since the pandemic and all that. But, you know, I have worked jobs where it was grueling hours, low pay and stuff. And I had to take a step back and say, you know, is this, is this a valuable use of my time? And, and I get what you're saying too, like that, you know, the criticisms of this kind of individualist culture, right? Mm -hmm. That, because when you hear that, you hear the uh, whole like, pull yourself up by the bootstraps type, right. <laughs> type language. And I've, I found this kind of this, this weird kind of blend, right? Like there's certain things I can control, but there's certain things where I'm like, hey, we need to get together, talk about these things, talk about structure. So one yeah. of, one of, one of my, I got, I got a couple last questions. I'm going to put you, put you in some thought experiments. Okay. So, all right. okay. So Oliver, tomorrow I make you president unlimited power. What are some, what are some things that you would, you would change? What are, what are a few things to help us reclaim our time or find better uses of our time? Would it be, you know, uh, more time off parental leave? People have talked about four day work weeks. Would it be up in the minimum wage? What would President Oliver do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I would really do is I would gather around me uh, a whole lot of really good advisors who knew what I uh, <laughs> good answer. And I wouldn't, uh, and I wouldn't like just just dive in. But I think that I, 
I think I'm sort of uh, kind of 80% on board with UBI, with universal basic income. I feel mm. like I haven't quite studied it enough to, to say that. Um, I am 100% on board with like European style, not British style, like you real European style um, leave and family leave and parental leave and, um, and like uh, childcare provision and, um, you know, all of that. And the little boxes they send you in Finland when you have a baby who are full of uh, all the supplies you need for the yeah. first month or whatever, all that stuff. I think that, I think um, that's absolutely good. I think where my, where, I experience a bit of conflict in myself about the places where this becomes sort of obligatory, right? So there are, there are com big companies in, I think France and Germany at the moment where certain corporations you like you can't send emails to employees after 5 30 oh, yeah. and something like that and um i think that's good but i'm not completely immune to the sort of um i can hear you know the sort of silicon valley pushback against that it's like you're gonna like squelch creativity and entrepreneurialism yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> people from i think uh i think um absolutely uh, I'm I'm absolutely for raising the the minimum wage, and I think that um, just in general, I feel like in the United States, and to some extent, and increasingly in Britain, as compared to some other places in in Europe and elsewhere, like it, if you drop off the very bottom of the system, mm. you are kind of like completely on your own in a way that I think is. Is very scary and that's where i do become a bit of a big government person i think like it is mm -hmm. government's role to um not let people drop completely off the bottom i think you know you, you then don't want to create a kind of economy so centralized and controlled that uh, that 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 um creativity finds it harder to flourish but like yeah. I, I don't think anyone should um should fall into the the very pits of oh yeah sort of forgottenness and that does always seem like that is kind of the case here yeah uh, yes in a, in a sort of way that alarms me yeah I, absolutely. Else, that's a distraction from the fact that that could happen to you even if it hasn't happened to you mm -hmm. it's a distraction from making your best contribution to the life right yeah no uh you know just uh uh working in mental health treatment and seeing people trying to get sober because they fell without that kind of safety net and rebuilding and you know people just you know trying to rehabilitate out of like prison and stuff like they're like down there but then there's other people where just the economy crashes or whatever but anyway i don't even have enough time to go on this rant oliver because i am very <laughs> i'm pretty left as well but yeah there's always that thing like oh well if we like level things out there's no you know we'll lose creativity and people won't be motivated but like i said your book in combination with wills about the status game like it's part of our human nature to go up the, the the hierarchy like in our social groups so trust me even if we all got paid similar wages people are still going to try to outdo the person next to them so i like that's just part yeah. of human nature so i don't see that that really being a problem but uh I always feel like there's, a, there's a certain number of billions of dollars where maybe like maybe that should be as much as anyone could earn because i feel like you're going to be you're going to be okay with uh yeah, are you right? <laughs> yeah, no, I think about that all the time too. When we're talking about like how much productivity, like what's the end goal? Like when I think about like how how many billions are enough billions? Like where you're just right. like, oh, right. okay, like hey, I'm good, I'm good now. I can you know buy the planet. But uh, okay, Oliver, last question. So that was more of a macro level, right? What would we do? Like policy changes, but now we're going to get a little individualist. All right, so 
Oliver, in this in this scenario, you and I have been friends for years, best buddy since we're growing up. And I come to you and I'm like, Oliver, time is getting away from me. I feel like I don't have enough. I feel like I'm constantly working. I don't have extra time. All these things, you know, my job's working me like crazy. I don't spend enough time with the people I love, all this stuff. What should I do? Where should I start? Lay it on me, Oliver. And I don't have money for a therapist. So you're, you're all I got. Wait, just ask me that question one more time. Where do you start? I, I am a friend of yours. So you right. got to give me personal yeah. advice. Yeah. No, no, where, that's fine. But where do you start with all of this? You just like everything? Yeah, everything. Just time is just, time okay. is a biggest issue. Where should I start? Because I'm thinking about all the people where you, you talk about all the issues we have with time. And I'm thinking somebody has all of these things. Is there like, where's a starting point? Wow. Yeah, I think it's just a very, it's a big question, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Let me, let me think, let me think. Um, I think that I'm in general very much in favor of sort of starting from the bottom up. So I, mm. don't, I don't sort of think that people ever get anywhere very much by sort of deciding that they're going to um, completely uh, rebuild their whole lives in a different, in a different way. Yeah. Because I think that's sort of, it's a recipe for sort of creating huge pressure on yourself to um, kind of pull it all off perfectly. And then it's very depressing when you don't. So I think, you know, I would start at the level of the day. I would make no particular intentions beyond today or tomorrow. Um, I think one of the things I would do if you have the flexibility of your time is to use some kind of a time boxing approach to your schedule where you say, okay, mm. I'm going to work from this hour to this hour today. And after that time, I'm going to get up and walk away. Um, and I'm going to make my decisions about what I work on inside that work time based on, uh, based on that limit, based on the fact that I can't work past mm. five or six o'clock, whatever it is. I think that is a, is a good sort of first uh, yeah. step. If you're sort of coming at it from a position of, being totally demotivated, which mm. I know you're not, but like someone might be. Um, one thing I always think is like narrow your time horizon right down to like, there's a technique that comes from various people. I'm, uh, it's not original to me, but it's very simple. Get a notebook, write down one item that will be useful to do, do it, cross it out, write down another item that will be useful to do, do it, cross it out, and just literally like, it's this incredibly narrow time horizon where you're just saying, I'm just going to think about what I'm going to do next, one mm. thing. And that I think is an amazing technique for getting out of a rut because then you, you're, not, you're not saying, oh, wow, I've got to pull off an amazing amount of stuff today in order to justify my existence on the planet. You're just being like, what's this next thing? So like, mm. you know, I'm, I'm doing this podcast with you and I know that when it's over, I have to... Uh, walk the dog that I'm dog sitting at the moment. So, um, and I just sort of have to do that. And, you know, then I can think about the next thing and the next thing, but like, there's something to be said for not looking too far ahead and just bringing yourself back to where you really are. Yeah, no, no, look, look, if I, if this was a real scenario, you would have fixed me, Oliver. Like th these are things that, <laughs> that I, I definitely, I, I definitely do even to this day. If I'm feeling just not wanting to do anything, it's like, Hey, just, you know, do the dishes or go for your walk or take out the trash, just something small. And, and yeah, it kind of gives you this kind of like 
little little jump start. But lastly, too, when you talk about kind of blocking out this time, I only recently got into using a calendar, like fortunately, before I started this podcast and talked to so many authors. But uh, it's really helped me because I'm like, okay, this time is blocked out for this work. And I, I think what's been beneficial for me is looking at the negative space, right? Like, oh, oh, look, like, cause you could feel overwhelmed, feel constantly busy and say, hey, here's a chunk right here where I could do blank, whatever it is, relax, walk around, take a break, whatever it is. So, so yeah, blocking out time has been really, really helpful for me since I'm working, doing the podcast, I write, I do YouTube, all sorts of stuff, so. Yeah, and like block out leisure time. Like you don't need to, I don't mean oh, like yeah. have a very structured approach to it, but just like put, treat it like a meeting that you're gonna spend an hour and a half doing whatever mm. you want um, and, and don't let things, think, like don't let there be incursions on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, in the book, I'm not going to spoil it. But yeah, you mentioned it. you 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 go through these like questions to ask ourselves and some of these tips at the end. So everybody needs to go grab a copy. It's out now. But yeah, where, where can people get it? I got an early copy. So where is it available? Is there an audio version? And, and if you could tell everybody where they can find you, where's the best place to keep up with new stuff coming from Oliver? Well, the book is available in all the usual places and it's available as an ebook as well as a hard copy. And it's also available as an audiobook read by me. Um, uh, my website is oliverberkman.com. That's B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Oliver Berkman. And at the website, you can sign up for this um, twice monthly email that I do called The, the Imperfectionist, where I sort of mm. um, send a little article or set of thoughts. Um, so that's probably the most reliable way to... Um, see the stuff that I'm writing and thinking about first. That's that's fantastic. I've been getting into newsletter, didn't really realize you had one, so I'm going to go sign up. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, Oliver, this was this was so fun and we'll you 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 will be writing more and I still need to read some of your other books, so we'll have to do this again sometime, but I really really appreciate you taking the time to come on here and chat <laughs> with me. Well, thank you and thanks for such great questions and your um uh, your questions are appreciated. Your enthusiasm is, uh, is appreciated. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everybody. There you have it. That was my conversation with Oliver Berkman. And I loved it. I, I hope you enjoyed it too. Like, I love how we were able to, you know, talk and just kind of like toss around ideas and, and all that. And I hope you guys gained a lot from that, that conversation. But I'll tell you right now, you will get a thousand times more from reading his book for thousand weeks. Like, like I mentioned in this podcast, like I read it, I had a friend read this book and he was like, oh my God. And he started like reflecting and looking at things and not in a bad way. Okay. Not in a bad way. So, so check this book out and yeah, tweet at me, tweet at Oliver and let us know like what you think. I love conversations around time. It's something I've been thinking about so much for a while. So when I saw this topic, I'm like, finally. Finally, someone is writing about this. So yeah, make sure you check down in the description below. I have linked Oliver's website uh, where you can sign up for his newsletter. Like I said, I'm getting in on that. So sign up for his newsletter, follow him on Twitter. And I have linked both 4,000 Weeks, his brand new book and The Antidote. All right. And make sure you stay tuned because if you enjoyed Oliver, he'll be back on the podcast. I already, I already have the episode. I'm just trying to space these out a little bit because this is a brand new book. Want to make, make sure we get the attention on that. But you should be going through his whole catalog because Oliver is an amazing, amazing writer. All right. So make sure you follow him, grab a copy of 4,000 Weeks. And while you're down in the description, make sure you are following me at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram 
and Twitter. All right. I love talking with you and chatting with you and getting your ideas and you guys send over book recommendations and, and all that stuff. So yeah, I love engaging with all of you. And that's one of the things about coming from YouTube over to a podcast is like, I've had to try to figure out a way to you know, chat with the community, you know? So for all of you who reach out or you email me to get into some more nuanced conversations about stuff, I dig it, all right? So uh, yeah, but other than that, if you're new here, if for some reason this is your first episode, uh, make sure you're following the podcast or you're subscribed, uh, whether you're on Apple or Spotify, and some things that really help out the podcast that are absolutely 1000% free for you to do, all right, is over on Apple, leave a rating, leave a review. And I also check the reviews. Like, so if you got honest feedback, if there's something I can improve, I love it, love it, love it, love it. All right, but leaving a rating, leaving a review, and yeah, like this conversation, this episode, or any other ones, but for example, this one, if you know people who are on, you know, your Facebook friends list or followers on Twitter or over on Instagram, share this episode, all right? If you know people who are struggling with time management, if they feel burnt out, overwhelmed, whatever it is, make sure you share this out on social media. But all those things, all these things really help support the, the podcast because it tells the algorithms, hey, people are engaging, they're sharing it, they're rating it, all that stuff. And we can grow this lovely community that we have. All right. But uh, other ways to support the podcast uh, down below, uh, you can go to the rewiredsoul.com. I have self-published some books uh, on mental health. Like I have a book on anxiety, on anger management, some addiction recovery stuff. Um, there's also a link down there if you want to become a patron, get access to some exclusive stuff, early episodes and all that. And lastly, something that's really, really helped me out um, is therapy. So there's an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp online therapy. And it's a service that I've personally used. All right. It's helped me with depression and anxiety and all of that. And kind of, you know, even these topics around managing our time and, you know, when, when I get overloaded and burned out. So if that sounds like a good thing to you, uh, check out that affiliate link for better help online therapy. All right. So again, huge thank you to Oliver for taking the time to come over on the podcast to talk about his brand new book and make sure you grab yourself a copy. All right. But anyways, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day and i will be back tomorrow with another episode talking to another author about a fantastic book so make sure you stay tuned all right i will see you in the next one